Well, good morning again. We are, I'm going to say something that's rather obvious, but I want to unpack it, so hang in there with me. We are uncomfortable with death. We are uncomfortable with death. We are accustomed to it, but we are dramatically, drastically, deeply uncomfortable with it. We are accustomed to it, okay, so we, we are not surprised by obituaries or hearses or funeral homes or cemeteries. We are accustomed to it in that sense. And yet at the same time, we are desperately, deeply uncomfortable with it. Now think with me about our traditions surrounding death. You know, it wasn't until sometime in the 19th century that embalming became a, a common practice in the West. And, and with that, an industry flowing out of, of that, ornate caskets and vaults and cosmetics as part of death. We are, are so desperate to hide this, to speak euphemistically about it, to play it down, to ignore it even if we can. We are so uncomfortable with it. In fact, really all of that is, is down deep rooted in what we just have to call it fear. We are uncomfortable with death because we fear it. Now we're moving this morning into another one of our installments in this series through the I Am statements, Jesus' declarations as recorded for us in John's Gospel when he says, I am, and then something comes afterwards. Well, this morning, we're going to be talking about something that, taken to heart, can free you of your fear of death. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And there are radical implications to those words. So if you've got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, uh, it's going to be on the screen. If you're clicking towards it, turning towards it, but you're not quite sure where is this, it's okay. New Testament's the fourth of the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 11. We're reading almost the whole chapter. I'm, I'll fess up with you. It's a long reading, but there's no way around it. We've just got to do the whole thing. Uh, John chapter 11, starting in verse 1, all the way through verse 44. But it's so good, it's so rich, you're not going to notice how long it is. All right? Hear now God's word. John 11. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sis her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So... The sister sent to him, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, 
When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone, stump, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. 
When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Can we pray? Lord, ah, would you help us to see what those people saw, to hear what those people heard? Would you put us there? Would you reveal yourself as the resurrection and the life to us today, here, now? Would the implications of that begin to burst forth like new growth in furrowed, well-prepared soil where the seeds are coming to life, coming to life even in us. Pray in your name. Amen. The history of professional sports is filled with prima donnas. You know what prima donnas are. These are men and women within the, the sports world in particular. It's oftentimes the context in which the phrasing is used, who just spend a little bit too much time breathing, excuse me, believing, reading their press as to how great they are, as to how wonderful they are. They begin to look in the mirror and say, yes, that, that's true, that, that's me. And they don't really, over time, begin to care so much for their fans. They might even say, maybe not externally, they might not voice it, but oftentimes they're certainly thinking it, feeling it. You know, I am this team. You know, I am this team. If it wasn't for me, there really wouldn't be anything with this, this franchise, this team, this, this group. Such as my contribution to this effort. Now, we might praise these individuals for their feats out on the court or the field, or whatever it may be. But the fact of the matter is, we don't like them. We're offended, we're, we shun them, in a sense, them for their pride, even as we applaud them for their efforts and their accomplishments. Now, I say that because now you come to Jesus. And what does he say? Let's look at it again. Verses 25 through 26. It's pretty striking. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you hear what he is saying? He is saying, he, he is saying that the resurrection and life everlasting and ever deepening, such life is so closely bound up with him, it doesn't exist without him. For there to be resurrection, life everlasting, for there to be life in the sense that he means it here, ever, de ever deepening, it is inextricably bound up with him. Inextricably bound up with, with him. Now, those of you who have been a part of this series and have been paying attention, you know that in, we've been talking about the fact that they really grapple with well with these I am statements in John's gospel, you've got to do two things. You've got to read broad and you've got to read back. 
okay? So reading broadly through John's gospel, we've seen this already. We've already seen that he is the source of life. We've seen it materially. We've seen it spiritually. We've seen it physically. And John is just putting a point on it right here, saying, look to him. He, in him is life, and in only him is life to be found. Reading broadly. Now, reading back, what do you find here? Well, going back, we see that in the Old Testament, with the prophets in particular, the restoration of the nation of Israel coming out of exile back into the promised land was oftentimes pictured as a resurrection. That was the imagery that was used. We read from Ezekiel just a moment ago. That's actually chiefly in its context what that passage is, is about. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is standing there outside this tomb speaking to these sisters with other people listening and saying everything that that is ultimately about, everything that that restoration slash resurrection was meant to picture and image and point towards is me. What a statement. What a statement. And, and what is the, the, the means to this? What he, he goes even further. He says, look, I, I, I am the means to, the, the way to, the only way to this everlasting, ever-deepening life. And the, that, that means is, it comes through belief, not just wishing upon a star in a Hollywood sort of, you know, just believe, not, not in that sense, but belief in Him, trusting in Him, turning to Him, looking to Him, leaning upon Him. He's saying, belief in me is the means to life, this resurrection life, the life that begins now and goes on out forever and ever and ever over that horizon. Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And the basic point of this passage is, where we're going over the next few minutes is, he says, I am the resurrection of the life, and that, to the degree that we take that into our hearts, will utterly change and transform our view of all of life. He is the resurrection and the life, the degree to which we take that into our hearts will absolutely transform our view of all of life. Three things in particular. You've got the outline with you. It's where we're going. So in what ways might it transform, change, up in our, our view of all of life? Well, the first one being the path ahead. I'll unpack these as we go. First, the, the, the path ahead. The second thing is the pain of death, how, how we view that, how we experience that, how we go through that. And the third thing being our understanding of the power of God. Yes, there's alliteration there, three Ps. So the, the path ahead, the pain of death, and the power of God. So the first one is the path ahead. And by, by that, what I mean is our expectations. If, in fact, we are setting out as followers of Jesus, as his disciples, walking, living in adherence to him and in company with him, and in his presence, we need to know what we're in for. And what we come to find out as we look at him and pay attention to what he's saying and what he's doing is that his ways can be shockingly surprising. And, and now this is a long-standing pattern. The larger pattern of all of Scripture points us towards this. That this is the way God works with his people. So Old Testament, let me give you a couple of examples. So the Lord surprises, hmm, Moses. Moses. 
80 years old the man was at the burning bush. It's time to retire. Past time to retire. He's 80 years old. He has no gift of speaking, and he's being called to everything that unfolds after that. The prophet Habakkuk gets word from the Lord that he's going to use a neighboring nation, not just any neighboring nation, but a nation that is known by everybody in the region to be the most socially, morally corrupt nation there's known. To do what? To chasten and discipline Israel for her idolatry. What? That's surprising. That's a head-scratcher. New Testament. Let's just go with Paul. Paul the Apostle prays for the healing of who knows how many people. You just see summations of it in Acts and allusions to it in his letters. We have no idea how many times exactly he prayed for and then saw the healing of other people. Okay? Extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And yet, when it came to the thorn in his flesh, many scholars believe that was probably an eye ailment of some kind. When it came to the thorn in his flesh, Paul prays for healing, and God says, no. I'm going to give you grace to bear under it. What? Lord, can't you see, pardon the pun, can't you see how much better it would be in my service to you and planning churches and training people, leading people, teaching people, if I could see God's surprising ways. Now you come to this case study, John 11. And it is certainly surprising. I don't know if you, you saw this, if you noticed this. So in the very opening words, Jesus, just the very beginning verses of the, of the chapter, Jesus gets word that a dear friend of his is gravely ill. Now, you just got to understand the fact that he's getting word, that's not just meant to deliver news. That's a request. That's why the news has been sent. Jesus, come do something. And so what does Jesus do? He doesn't pack up and go. He sits down and waits. Why? Is it apathy? I don't care. Is it busyness? I got too much going on. Yeah, I know I'm God, but, you know, God gets busy. Is that what's going on? No, no. We see it here. Verses 4 through 6. But when Jesus heard it, that is the news, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, or you could say, therefore, or you could say, with that in mind. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. If your translation says, yet, chuck it. You have permission from me, never mind. (laughs) Why does Jesus stay? Why doesn't he go? Why doesn't he do what these dear beloved friends of his want him to do? Why? Out of love. 
And, in, and he, going well, enlarging that a little further, we see that he has greater purposes in mind, that the, the glory of God would be manifested. He has to delay. He can't go. This is the only way for his glory, for his divinity, for his power, for his love, for all of this, for his intentions. We'll get to this in a few minutes. To be manifested, to be put on display. If he goes, if he does what they think is the right thing to do, none of this is going to happen. None of this is going to happen if he plays by Mary and Martha's understandable agenda. The path ahead, that is what it means to follow Jesus. Here we're learning some things about who he is and what it's like to, to be a disciple. And sometimes we're going to encounter some shocking, surprising ways along the path. So here's an, an illustration maybe it'll help you grapple with. So maybe you've heard this story before. It, it's just made up. So uh, shipwreck survivor, okay, uh, makes their way, swims their way to a deserted island. They get to the deserted island, they pray for rescue, he or she prays for rescue from, from the Lord, and then proceeds to build a little hut, a hut for, for shelter and for, to store what little goods they have that have washed up on, on the shore of this little island. And uh, the survivor goes out one day and is foraging for food, and on their way back they see smoke. Oh, no. And it's the hut. The hut is on fire, and it burns to the ground. So all the shelter, all the storage for what little they had is gone. And so said survivor lifts up their hands to the, to the sky and says, Lord, what are you doing? How could you treat me this way? And in their despair, lays down in the sand and goes to sleep, only to be awakened the next day by the sound of a ship, a ship on the horizon coming towards them. It's their rescue. And so the survivor says, how did you know I was here? We saw your smoke signal. You don't know. Now, let me ask you this question. Has your hut ever burned to the ground? You know what I mean by that? Has your, by asking if your hut has ever burned to the ground. Have you ever been absolutely, positively sure you knew what God needed to do, how and when? You knew it. And he didn't do it. I have. A lot. The, some of the most painful times in your life, in our lives, come when we think we know, when we insist that he's got to do it that way, based on our assumptions and expectations, we create these demands, and that creates some of the most painful periods of our lives when that's the way we operate, which tells us perhaps, maybe, we should hold on to those demands a little more loosely and hold on to his unfailing love a little more tightly. Because that's what we can know. That's what we can know, is that he loves his own. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. We see here his surprising ways, but his ways are good. Forever always. 
which moves us into the second point. What do we do then with death? Hmm. The, the, the pain of death. How do we respond to that? How do we reckon with that? How do we struggle with that? How does Jesus? Well, that's a really good question because if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, your eyes should be locked on Jesus. So how does he respond to death? Because that should tell us about our own. So what do we see? Well, first of all, we see that he feels. Jesus' response to death is not that of the stoic, stiff upper lip, putting on a show. We see here righteous anger in the face of death. Let's look at verses 32 to 33. What do we we read? Uh, Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I've heard several New Testament scholars say that our English just does not cut it here. There's just not a good English translation out there that's, you know, in the grand marketplace because it's not to say deeply moved in spirit. The connotation is what a horse would do in snorting. The idea here is not anguish, but anger. That's what the phrase means to be in in, in the Greek. Deeply moved in spirit. And then also in that sentence, it says he is greatly troubled. So there's this inner turmoil, yes, within the Son of God. Inner turmoil within that is erupting externally. It is visible. It's that strong. It's that strong. This righteous anger. So the reality of his anger, what's the reason for his anger? It's not, it's not, look, you're messing with my schedule. I've got a plan. You know, our frustration we all get when somebody, you know, messes with our plan for the day. That's, it's, it's not that. It's not, oh, you stupid mourners, how li- you little faith. You should trust God. That's not why he's angry. He is angry at the evil of death. He is angry at the results of the fall and its destruction, the pain, the suffering that it is causing to his people, bringing to his people. That's why he's angry. And he is angry. He, it's a righteous rage. This is a, and a call to arms. This is a Jesus' call to arms at this point. Some of you could identify with this. If, if you have ever had your home your school or your place of work vandalized. You ever experienced something like that? Maybe it was your car. Maybe it was something you created. Uh, Maybe it was some treasure. You know, it wasn't a treasure to anybody else, but to you, to you, it was prized. And somebody else dealt with it, did to it, callously destroyed it, damaged it. How do you feel? Violated. Angry. Angry. And justifiably so. That's what Jesus is feeling here towards death as we would towards towards vandalism. It's not just deep anger, though. We also see something of deep sorrow. It's not one or the other. It's both, both here at the same time. So verses 34 and 35. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. These are real tears. It's not like, you know, what the actors do, you know, squinching. I can imagine a time I was sad. No. These are real tears upon the cheeks of Jesus that were visible to the people around him. Why? Why is he sorrowful? Now, some misunderstand this and say, well, he's, he's sorry because his friend, he's more, no, he's, he knows what he's about to do. That doesn't make any sense at all. He is sorrowful for the sorrow of these two sisters, the family, the impact, the, the, the grief that they are experiencing. That's where his heart goes. He is sorrowful for their sorrow. He is mourning for their mourning. He is grieved for their grief. And so he weeps. Jesus is feeling the deepest sense of compassion and empathy for his friends. That's the heart of the Savior. This is his response, not one without the other, not anger without the sadness, not sadness without the anger. It's both at the same time showing us the way forward and how perhaps we can, ought to feel and feel free to feel and give one another the freedom to feel in response to death. There's some things we ought to understand about, about death. Death is not normal. It is abnormal. This is not, this experience, you know, of, of, of the obituaries, the hearses, the cemeteries, the funeral homes, the eulogies, all of it. That is not how things have always been on this earth. Go back and read Genesis 1 and 2. That is not how things have always been. It is not how they were supposed to be. Read Genesis 3. Now go to the end of the book, Revelation, and praise God it is not how things will forever be. Death is not normal. It is abnormal. It is an intruder. It doesn't belong here. It's a trespasser. So therefore, truly we can say we should resist it we should work against it, pray against it, do all that we ethically can to fight against the tide of it, and pray, and pray, releasing, um, entrusting, entrusting ourselves and our loved ones into the hands of the one who is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. And as such, he shows us how even to respond to this vandalization, this intruder, this trespasser, the enemy of death. That is, by the way, a defeated enemy, a vanquished enemy, which takes us to the third point. So we have not just the path ahead, what to expect. We have not just the pain of death, how to engage, how to respond, but we also have the power, the power of God. And here we see, if you skip down with me to verses 43 to 44, when he had said these things, that's Jesus, and it's referring back to the, the prayer that he lifted up. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, 
Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. A shocking command. Think of, the, think of, of these words, just the words. Just you're, you're there. You're there at the grave, outside the tomb, outside that cave with the stone rolled out in front. And the people roll it back, and you're like, oh, no. You know, the, the stench, King James, but, oh, Lord, he stinketh. That's actually a way to translate. So you're standing there outside, and you hear him say, come out. What do you think is going to happen? Dang it, you know, this is a really good ride, but he's not, this isn't good. No, it, no, this isn't good. Yeah. Because it wasn't a request. It wasn't an invitation. It was a summons. It was a command. And so the dead man came out. Lungs breathing, heart beating, all of it. He just needed a little help. A little help from his friends so he could move better. And in so doing, what Jesus is, is, is pointing us back towards is, in fact, it was read earlier, his role at creation in his speaking all things into existence. Now what do you see here? His speaking into, into if you will, recreation, renewal, restoration. Same one speaking. The one who did it once before. At the beginning, it's doing it here again. And if you're standing there watching all this and paying attention and thinking about it, and then you spend days, weeks, months, surely years, like, thinking about this, what are the lessons you begin to learn? What are the, the, the takeaways from here? That Jesus is the giver of life. In him is the resurrection, the never-ending life. In him is eternal life, everlasting life, ever-deepening, ever-deepening life. In this event, which, by the way, just takes place days before his own resurrection, is pointing us towards what's going to happen with, at our resurrection, the resurrection of all of his people, all of his followers, all of his disciples, when he says, come on. It's a reversal of the curse, the curse that, that was set into motion by, by Adam uh, in his failure there in, in the garden, consequence of which was separations, rifts, disintegration at every level of creation, man from God, man from within himself, man between with, with one another, man from creation. All those rifts, all those separations, all those layers of disintegration, all now to be made right, healed, restored, renewed. Jesus, this is who he's showing himself to be. This is the power on display, the reign of the king. And he's, we can see here the king has come. The king has come. He is on the scene. But the critical thing to remember here, and it kind of takes you back to the expectations... That full coming has yet to come. There's tension here in which we live right now. Some of you have heard me use this analogy before, and it's not original to me, but I'm just going to bring it out of the file drawer here right now. D-Day, June 6, 1944, World War II, when the Allies were able, by land, air, and sea, tremendous, astonishing, coordinated effort, 
thank God, a successful effort, to form a beachhead there in France to therein allow the Allies to move forward into Europe, therein ensuring victory in Europe. D-Day, June 6, 1944. However, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, was not June 7, 1944. It was May 8, 1945. There were still 336 days in which the German army said, no, we're not done in which Hitler refused to concede defeat, in which there was still a great struggle even as the outcome was determined because of D-Day. VE Day was inevitable because of D-Day, but there was not an immediacy between them. There were 336 days between them the Battle of the Bulge, and all the rest. What does that mean? It means that we have to have, if you will, on the one hand, tempered expectations. Um, The good news is the king has come, and the kingdom has arrived, and the the reign and rule of God now is, is real, and yet at the same time, it is not yet in full. But it has come. I know I sound like I'm talking to both sides of my mouth. I am, because there's tension here. This is why we get glimpses of the king and the coming of the kingdom even now. This is why you have those experiences as a disciple of Jesus, of sometimes even hard to describe, hard to understand feelings of his presence and closeness and intimacy with you now. That's a foretaste. That's a foretaste of something that's coming forever, where your relationship with him will never grow old and cold. That's a foretaste of something that's coming right now, right now. Beachhead. Beachhead established. Yet more. This is the reason why. Healings come. Miraculous healings come. It's why there are conversions That's why there are astonishing stories, some of us can attest to them, of his provision in our lives and answers to prayer. What is that hearkening to? What is that pointing us to? The reality of that the kingdom has come, the beachhead has been established, and yet there's more coming in which it's all going to be restored, all made new, all made right because of who this king is and the reality of the kingdom and his, it's coming. So he is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. And there is a reality to his power, a reality to his coming. So let me ask you this, just as we wrap this up, and we do, we're at the time. Do you know him? Do you know him as the resurrection and the life? And I'm asking that to two groups of people. Now, the obvious group of people to ask this question to are folks perhaps right here, right now, who searching, exploring, inquiring, curious about Christianity and this Jesus. And so when I put the question to you, and I do, do you know him? I mean that in that sense of first time. Have you 
come to embrace him and what he has done for you as your Lord and Savior, as the resurrection and life in your life. But there's another audience. Longtime followers of him whose lives bear little sign of this life. I'm not questioning whether or not you're a follower of him. That's not my point. But have you really taken to heart what he's done for you? Have you really heard who this is and the deep eternal wealth that we have as his own? As followers of the rest, the one who alone in this universe could be called the resurrection and the life. Do you know him today? Let's pray. Jesus, again, would you put us there? Whether we've heard these words all the way back from when we were toddlers at VBS, or maybe this is the first time we've ever heard John 11 in our lives, would you please put us there and help us to be shocked as we see the tears as we hear the cries as we feel the hush come over all of us in the crowd as we see that stone rolled away and a man who really was dead come out because of what you told him to do. What else can we say? What else could be said? You are the resurrection and the life. You are God in the flesh. You are the Savior, the Restorer, the one true King. The one truly for whom our hearts long. This is good news. Would you help us hear it? We pray in your name.